0: Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, turn them open to Luke chapter 6 as we are looking at a very important stretch of verses today, kind of covering a lot of of ground this morning. In Luke chapter 6, when you get there, find verse 20, that's what we'll pick up reading here in a few moments. Well, in 1927, the famous English poet T.S. Eliot became a Christian. He professed faith in Jesus. He was baptized and confirmed by the church that he joined in as a result of coming to faith in Jesus. Now before that moment, this widely influential poet, one of the most impactful uh, modern poets of the 20th century, before that day came, he belonged to a group of socialites known as the London uh, Bloomsbury Group. And this was a small, influential group of artists and intellectuals who were shaping things on a cultural level. And he was very much a part of that crew. That was his community. That was the group he ran through the world with But when news broke of his conversion, there were members of that group that did not like it. Uh, the leader of the group was a woman by the name of Virginia Woolf, wrote lots of novels and essays, a tremendous writer. She uh, did not respond supportively to this development in Eliot's life. And so she was actually interviewed where she commented on Eliot's conversion. And this is what she said. She said, I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Elliott, who may be called dead to us, dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. And so it's safe to say that that relationship was ruptured as a result of Elliot's faith in Jesus. It's safe to say that Elliot experienced a type of alienation as this influential group of artists and influencers kind of cast him out of their social circle. He no longer belonged to that kingdom, so to speak. But rest assured, Elliot found a better kingdom to belong to. He was a part of a new community, a new kingdom, a new society that would far eclipse the alienating one that he was pushed out of. He was now a part of a kingdom that championed reconciliation and love and forgiveness and grace and humility and all these beautiful things. Rest assured that Elliot stepped into a kingdom that was far better than the one that he was alienated from. And what you find here in Luke chapter 6 is Jesus sharing words with his disciples that could have been a comfort to Elliot during these days. A comfort to anyone like Elliot who experiences alienation from the inferior kingdoms of this world because they find themselves belonging to the eternal kingdom of God. These words are designed to encourage guys like Elliot and many, many others who come to faith in Jesus. As we come to faith in Jesus, we find ourselves tethered to an eternal kingdom, one that will last forever. And what Jesus is laying down here, beginning in verse 20, he's describing what life in the kingdom of God looks like. He's describing this unique culture that would characterize all who would belong to Jesus and all who would step into his kingdom, benefiting from his reign and his rule and his redemption. And the flow of the passage kind of moves earlier in verse 12. There's a moment where Jesus goes and he spends some time praying. And then after he spends some time praying to his heavenly father, he comes down from the mountain and he picks 12 disciples, 12 apostles. These guys who would bear a definitive and authoritative witness to his life and his death and his resurrection. He picks that crew saying, look, I'm here to establish a new Israel, a new kingdom. And I'm going to start with this ragtag bunch of ordinary people. And so he picks these guys who would later become apostles. And then he comes down with them and he begins to address a large crowd of people. So essentially the flow goes from praying to picking to preaching And Jesus begins to deliver a sermon in verse 20 where he's proclaiming the good news, the gospel of his kingdom. Now as we read through his words, they're going to sound very familiar to another passage in the New Testament known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You may be familiar with that stretch of Jesus' teaching. And so that has led some scholars to question whether or not this passage was Luke's version of that sermon, Or whether or not this passage represented uh, a different message that Jesus dropped at a different moment in time. There are those who say, well, Luke just took the Sermon on the Mount. He pulled out all the Jewish stuff and made it more accommodating and palatable to a Gentile context, a non-Jewish context. And so he condenses and summarizes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and fits it here in his Gospel but then there are others who say, "No, Jesus wasn't. Nec- I mean, Luke wasn't necessarily condensing and d de- uh, uh, g- g- taking all the Jewish stuff out of the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, he was giving a-, a different message at a different moment in time. And if if experience shows that a lot of times teachers do this, then that's a pretty good option." You know, I used to do itinerant ministry where I would travel to different contexts and I would preach and teach the Bible. A lot of times I brought the same message in different places and I would say the same things to different people. And it's safe to say that Jesus probably did the same thing. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and every chance he had to preach and to teach, that was his theme. That was his message. So... Regardless of where you fall and kind of where this passage fits in relation to the Sermon on the Mount, its substance, its content is our concern today because Jesus here is showing us what life in the kingdom of God should look like. And we're going to take a bird's eye view. We're going to view his words from about 30,000 feet high. We're going to run through the whole stretch here and Then, Lord willing, in the future, we're going to come back to the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew's Gospel and do a a deeper, more detailed kind of look at the sermon. But today, we're going to kind of look at the whole thing. And I just want to give you six characteristics of what life looks like in the kingdom of God. So picking up in verse 20, this is what we see. Jesus, looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. And so Jesus begins his sermon, his message in this moment by laying out a set of contrast, uh, a contrast a contrast between people who are blessed and people who are woeful. And if we're going to talk about what life in the kingdom looks like, we want to focus on that word blessed. Because the first characteristic that we want to consider today is that life in the kingdom of God should look joyful. Because life in the kingdom of God is a blessed state. It is a joyful state. And what he's doing here is he's contrasting kind of those who are blessed and those who are Woeful, and he draws out a striking contrast. There's remarkable symmetry and balance between these verses. You have the poor and the rich, you have the hungry and the full, you have the weeping and the laughing, you have the hated and the adored. But the most fundamental contrast that Jesus is making in this message isn't so much between those states of life, it's more, it seems to be more concerned with those who belong to Jesus and those who currently do not belong to Jesus. And he's saying those who belong to Jesus, they are blessed. They are joyful. Those who currently do not belong to Jesus, they are woeful. And we see this when you look at verse 20 because it says he looks up and you have this possessive word, his disciples. He's addressing those who belong to him primarily. And then you come down to the end of verse 22 and you have A blessing extended to those who are being alienated and treated poorly the way Virginia Woolf treated T.S. Eliot and what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are you because who who are treated this way because of the Son of Man. So the core contrast that Jesus is drawing is between those who belong to Jesus and inhabit his kingdom and those who do not belong to Jesus yet and who do not yet inhabit the kingdom of God. He's saying one is a blessed state and the other is a woeful state then when you look more closely at what he is saying you might summarize it this way saying that those who belong to Jesus though they might have nothing because they belong to Jesus they actually have everything and then he's saying to the other group if you don't belong to Jesus yet have everything that this world has to offer right now you don't really have anything and so that's kind of the contrast that he's drawing and he's fleshing out and And the word blessed here reminds us that Christianity is a faith of joy. That life in the kingdom of God should be a joyful reality. It should be a joyful existence. And one of the misnomers that exists in the world around us is that coming to faith in Jesus means you're going to step into a joyless life. And you're going to embrace a type of aesthetic lifestyle that can't enjoy the good aspects of God's creation. But nothing is further from the truth. Like Jesus brings joy into the lives of those who follow him. He brings joy into the lives of those who trust him. A joy that no situation or status in life can interfere with. See, you can have nothing and yet have Jesus and have everything for this, everything that can bring joy into your life. But then he contrasts that with the woes. And he says, there are those who are rich now and full now and hungry now. And there are those who are laughing now and, those who are spoken well of by anyone and everyone, and he says there's a there's a woefulness to that type of life. There's a woefulness to those who have everything but don't have Jesus. They may be laughing now, but that laughter is going to end one day. It's not unlike the situation that's described in the movie Gravity from 2013, where you had two astronauts who... We're on a routine spacewalk, and the shuttle is destroyed by some space debris, and they are cut off from their ship, and they're left drifting alone in, in space. And there was one description of the film as it was coming out that wrote, that described what was happening this way. It said, The astronauts are tethered to nothing but each other and spiraling out into the blackness. The deafening silence tells them they have lost any link to Earth and any chance for rescue as fear turns to panic, every gulp of air eats away at what little oxygen is left. But the only way home may be to go further out into the terrifying expanse of space. Now, once that film was released and that description was laid out, a German astronaut was brought in to kind of fact check the movie and to see how much of this is, it could actually happen. And, and he was quick to say that once they became untethered, the characters would have would have died, of course. And and then he, uh, the interviewer said, well, that doesn't sound like a very nice way to go. Drifting through nothingness in a space suit, waiting to die. And then the astronaut responded, well, when you're slowly running out of oxygen, the same thing happens as does when you're in thin air at the top of a mountain. Everything seems funny. And as you're laughing about it, you slowly nod off. I experienced this phenomenon in an altitude chamber during my training as an astronaut. At some point, someone in the group starts cracking bad jokes. He said, A person who dies alone in space, they actually die a cheerful death. In other words, situation is hopeless when you're slowly dying, and you might laugh until you breathe your final breath. Jesus is essentially saying, Woe to those who are running out of oxygen. They may appear to be living their best life, untethered to Jesus and untethered to his kingdom, but the laughter and pleasure they experience now it's it's fading. And soon it will cease. This is the woeful state of those who are currently not in relationship with Jesus. Those who are currently not in the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, woe, woe, woe. But for those of us who are in relationship with Jesus, who are looking to Jesus for everything we need, we find joy. We find a blessed state. But then you go on to verse 27 and we keep reading. He says, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full But love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. See, not only does life in the kingdom of God look joyful, life in the kingdom of God looks graceful. And Jesus begins to explain an ethic here that is otherworldly, an ethic here that was foreign to the whole world before Jesus started talking this way. Before Jesus began to drop these words and these words began to influence the world, there's a reason why we're not necessarily surprised by these words as Westerners because we know that Christianity's influence has spread in this direction. And and so some of these ideas are quite familiar today in our culture. They might not be practiced, but they're at least familiar. But when Jesus speaks these words, nobody thought this way. Love for enemies was a foreign alien concept. The world then was very much tit for tat, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It is Jesus that revolutionized the ethics of the world when he stepped onto the scene and said life in the kingdom of God looks graceful. It's about loving your enemies and blessing those who are mistreating you. That life in the kingdom of God is about treating people better than they deserve. It's a remarkable ethic that Jesus is dropping here. And he essentially says four commands. He says, I want you to love, I want you to do good, I want you to bless, I want you to pray. He says, I want you to do all those things in response to those who strike you, in response to those who take things from you, in response to those who ask from you. And and then if anyone takes anything from you, don't go chase them down and try to get it back. He wants us treating people better than they deserve. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. And the reason why this is what life in the kingdom of God looks like is because this is what it means to step into the kingdom. We are brought into the kingdom of God because Jesus treats us better than we deserve. That Jesus literally loved his enemies when he loved sinners and sufferers like us. This is why Ephesians chapter 2 would describe us in those words. They describe us as, as enemies of God, that there was a time when we had our fists up and God's direction, and yet God into the world not to fight us, but to woo us. And he loved us into submission. He loved us into surrender, saying this is how you change the world, not through violence and vengeance. You change the world through love, through sacrifice, through service. And so as those who are now... Citizens of the kingdom of God, this is how we live. We live lives where we are loving our enemies and we're treating people far better than they deserve. Now, he does allude here briefly to to what's called the golden rule. But he goes further and he says, what credit to you if you just treat people the way everybody treats everybody? He says, if you are kind to those who are kind to you, does that really set you apart in the world that is and so when you take Jesus' words and you flesh them out in light of everything that he says and does in the gospel, you find that Jesus, though he does encourage us to live by the golden rule, he really champions what we might call the gospel rule. You see, the golden rule says treat others as you want to be treated. The gospel rule says treat others the way God in Christ has treated you. And this is what Jesus is ultimately calling kingdom citizens to that we are to be graceful people, generous people who are treating others better than they deserve because that's how God in Christ treats us. He's loving us, He's giving to us, He's treating us far better than we deserve. And then you keep reading in verse 36, Jesus goes on to say, Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so here, he moves from starting with joyfulness to gracefulness. And now he's talking about being a merciful people. That life in the kingdom of God looks like mercy. And the mercy that he's talking about here is twofold. On one hand, it's a mercy that says, I'm going to refuse to find my status by negation. In other words, I'm not going to try to improve how I am perceived in the eyes of others by comparing myself in judgmental, condemning ways to people who aren't as good as me. He's saying this is what merciful people do. We don't find status by way of negation. But then he goes one step further and he says, He says, Not only do you not find status that way, he proceeds to say that you should be a merciful person who relents from punishing and and retaliating against those who do wrong to you. And he uses a big word here that is one of the most difficult words for us to, to practice and to embody regularly. He uses the word forgive. He says a merciful people forgives those who offend them. I believe a person is never more Christ-like than when they are forgiving another sinner. Forgiveness is the most Christ-like act any one of us can ever do because this is what Jesus has done for us. He has forgiven us of our sins. We're told in the book of Psalms that God is eager to do so, that he's willing and eager to forgive those who have sinned against him. And then we are also told that when God forgives us of our sins, he takes our sins and he separates them as far as the east is from the west, which means you should never be able to find them again. That God takes them and separates them from the east as far as the east is from the west. I don't know if my hands are going in the right direction, but the point is God forgives sins eagerly and he forgives sins eternally. And here we are in a passage where Jesus is saying, look, I want you to kind of do the types of things that I do. I am eager to forgive, and you should be eager to forgive too. I am definitive in my forgiveness, and you should be definitive in your forgiveness as well. This is one of the most hard, difficult things for us to talk about. I know, because when you are offended by someone, it's hard. You get wounds that are difficult to kind of find healing and to be able to get to a point where you're forgiving another person. I realize it's one of the most difficult things to do. And there's lots of things that can be said about forgiveness. You know, do you only forgive those who apologize? Do you only forgive those who repent, so to speak? Do you only forgive those who who come and ask for forgiveness? And so you begin to wrestle through some of those questions. And those are important questions to wrestle through. But... Notice that Jesus isn't necessarily explaining things away in this text. He's just dropping the principle. And notice that he's not so much focused on what the the person in need of forgiveness does here. What he's after is the forgiver. He's after those who are offended in a relationship. He's saying, I want you to be the type of people who forgive others because that's the most like me you'll ever be. This is what I have entered the world to do is to forgive sinners of their sin. And one of the ways you embody the priorities of my kingdom is by forgiving people too. I want you to take the offenses of those who wrong you. And I want you to cast them into the bottom of the sea. Never grab a fishing pole and try to pull them out of the water again. Bury them deep. Get rid of them. Forgive them. Do not treat people on the basis of their offense. Treat people on the basis of mercy and grace and the joy that Jesus is producing in you. A joy that their offense cannot rob, a joy that their transgression cannot take. This is the compounding effect of Jesus's message as he's moving from joy, grace, mercy, all of these dynamics influence and flow into each other. I love how the musical Hamilton talks about forgiveness. It talks about forgiveness as the great unimaginable. It's such an unimaginable thing, yet this is what Jesus imagines for us. Forgiveness is what is imagined for us when he lived and he died and he rose again. That's what forgiveness looks like. You want to know what forgiveness means? Forgiveness means for you to take the hit of other people's offenses. To take the hit and never cause them to take the hit for what they've done. Because Jesus ultimately took the hit our sins deserve when he went to the cross. The great unimaginable expression of forgiveness he embodied and expressed for us in Jesus. But then Jesus goes on and he begins to describe, use the metaphor in verse 38 that is a metaphor of life and joy and freedom. He he talks about, you know, merciful people. They, they experience a type of life that, that is overflowing with joy and pleasure and freedom. And this is an important dynamic of being a merciful person that when one of the reasons Jesus targets the forgiver is because he knows that when you withhold forgiveness from people, bitterness and resentment and all sorts of nasty things begin to grow up within you. And you become less like Jesus and more like everyone else who refuse to forgive those who sin against them or offend them or hurt them in a, discernible, in a discernible way. But he's saying if you're a merciful person, this is the type of life that will explode out of you. A life of abundance and joy and joy. It's going to be a wonderful image. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't have a lot of experience with with grain and pressing grain down and shaking it together until it runs and explodes out of a container, making a mess all over. But I have been to the salt and straw in Ballard. And I have seen the amount of ice cream that they put in a cone and the amount of toppings that you can get. And, and I have gotten into my car where all of this mess is just overflowing and getting over everyone. And Kim doesn't get mad at me because she's merciful and she sees this life and this joy, this pleasure that I'm having in that moment. And she's not going to hold me to task for it. No, it's, it's a picture of abundance, a picture of joy. And yes, it may get messy, but there's grace and there's mercy in the midst of it all. And this is essentially what The picture being painted here. But then you keep going in verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. So the progression so far is life in the kingdom of God looks joyful, it looks graceful, it looks merciful. Then you come to this moment and you see that life in the kingdom of God looks helpful. And Jesus asks a couple of rhetorical questions right off the bat. One expects a negative answer. Can the blind lead the blind? And the answer is no, that's not very helpful. And then he goes on to say, will they fall in a pit? Positive answer, yeah, they'll likely fall in a pit. It's not very helpful. And then he goes on to describe uh, a disciple not transcending his teacher, but becoming like his teacher. And this was a unique phrase for Jesus to use because it was common in that era for disciples to surpass their teachers. And that students were expected to surpass their teachers in the rabbinic world, in the Jewish world. But here, Jesus isn't letting you do that. Because he's ultimately your teacher and you're never going to surpass Jesus. You will always be his student, but you can become like Jesus. You can become the type of teacher that's helpful, not because you surpass Jesus and you think you no longer need him, but because you're always living out your need for Jesus. So he would go on to talk about this metaphor of, of having a splinter or having a beam of wood in your own eye. And refusing to deal with that because you're more concerned with the speck of wood in your brother's eye. And he's saying essentially if you go about life that way, you're not being helpful. You're being hypocritical. A helpful person doesn't ignore what's wrong in them because they're so obsessed with with what's wrong with everyone else. A helpful person recognizes their need for Jesus. And then they're essentially helping others find their need for Jesus. This is one of my favorite definitions of what evangelism is, is evangelism or sharing the gospel or telling people about Jesus is basically one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's helpful. And this is the rhythm of life that we want to lean into as followers of Jesus. We want to embrace a humility that says, I'm never beyond my, I never grow beyond my need for Jesus, but a humility that lives right here and helps everyone do the same. That's helpful. We're seeing things clearly because we're seeing things through Jesus. We're learning things truthfully because we're learning them from Jesus. And as we see things clearly and we discover truth from Jesus, we are more equipped to help people grow in the same direction. In other words, Jesus is saying we shouldn't try to change people without changing ourselves first. We shouldn't, be more, more, we shouldn't take everybody else's sins more seriously than we take our own. This is where social media goes awry, right? Social media seems to be filled with people who take the world's sins seriously, but nobody's dealing with their own sin, it seems. They're quick to point out everyone else's speck while refusing to deal with the beam sticking out of their eye socket. And Jesus saying, this isn't how it should be in my kingdom My kingdom is filled with people who are helpful because they're not bypassing their own sin for the sake of everybody else's. They are people who've come to me for help and they're leading others to come to me for help. That's the most helpful way you can you can live. And so social media calls out what's wrong with the world, but not wrong with the person. Social media tends to be filled with hypocrisy rather than humility, and hypocrisy is never helpful. But humility is always helpful. So you have helpfulness being dialed in here. And again, it's a bird's eye view. We'll keep rolling into verse 43. Verse 43, Jesus begins to drive his message towards a couple of of illustrations and pictures that are designed to apply what he is teaching. And you look at verse 43. And he says, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And so as Jesus kind of draws this message to a close, he seeks to apply it in a couple of ways by raising a couple of questions in the minds of those who are listening to him. And one question is, are you a good tree or a bad tree? is your life producing good fruit or bad fruit? And when you take the imagery here of a good tree producing good fruit, you're getting this imagery that is quite beautiful because life in the kingdom of God should look beautiful. It should be attractive. His kingdom is filled with good trees producing good fruit. I love these metaphors. I love these images. My favorite one, as Jesus would often draw this type of imagery in his teaching, is found in John chapter 15 when he calls himself the vine and disciples the branches. And he says, As you abide in me and I'm abiding in you, you're going to produce much fruit. And the fruit that he has in mind, there's a fruit of a transformed life, which is beautiful and attractive. The fruit of the Holy Spirit that takes the form of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering and self-control. This wonderful life that he wants to produce within all who are a part of his kingdom. So life in the kingdom of God should look beautiful. It should be attractive. Now, he points out that figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes. Nobody's going to the thorn bush to look for fruit. No one's going to the thorn bush to look for life. Nobody's going to the bramble bush to find grapes because the thorn bush and the bramble bush doesn't produce that type of beautiful, life-giving sustenance. But this idea of people not going there to gather stuff, it, it reminds us that the life we live in the kingdom of God should attract people who are currently far from God. People who are looking for life, people who are looking for sustenance, they should see life and they should see sustenance blooming in the lives of those who follow Jesus. And there's a particular emphasis there at the end where he connects the use of words to this beauty. And he emphasizes the use of words and begging the question, is, our, is the type of speech we use, is it attractive to outsiders or is it repulsive to them? And if you ask yourself that question, is the way you use words, does it attract people or does it repel them? How you answer that might be better determined by looking through your social media feed. How do you use words there? Do you use good words that are coming out of a good heart that is in submission to Jesus, that is being changed by Jesus or using bad words and harsh words and judgmental words and condemning words that is more repulsive to the watching world? The imagery of beauty here is that we should be living the kind of lives and using the kinds of words that people find attractive. As you know that a fruit tree doesn't produce fruit to feed itself. Fruit trees produce fruit that will be a benefit and a blessing to those who come to partake of its life. This is what the church should be. This is what it means to be a disciple, a citizen of the kingdom of God. We have the type of life that others should come and draw it, draw from. It should be attractive to people. And so you have Jesus really laying this out for his disciples, really towards the beginning of his ministry, because this is what he's wanting them to embody as they follow him through the world, living out his mission. But then you come to the final analogy he uses in verse 46. Where he asks the question, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say?" I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does, the one who hears and does not act, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the destruction of that house was great. And so he begins to land the plane in his message with this analogy of two houses being built on two different foundations. And the word I want to put before you when he's describing what life in the kingdom of God is like, it is joyful, it is graceful, it is merciful, it is helpful, it is beautiful, and finally it is stable. We're talking about a life that is secure, a life that is stable. He's seeing those who come to me and listen to me, but they don't allow my words to go in one ear and out the other. They take my word in, they think it through, and then they turn it out in obedience. This produces a life that is stable and secure. It stabilizes our lives until the very end so that no matter what environment Environmental chaos surrounds us and pops up around us. It's not going to knock us off or out of the kingdom of God. Notice the imagery he uses there. of Those who laid a good foundation on the rock, it said they had to dig deep to do it. It says those who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, those are the ones who could sustain a stable life when all hell was breaking loose around them. And saying this is where we are as followers of Jesus. We are disciples who dig deep. This means we're not going to settle for a superficial form of Christianity. A superficial form of Christianity that doesn't take Jesus' words seriously, that isn't looking to him for life and guidance and leadership. We're not going to settle for a form of superficial Christianity that can easily be blown over by a pandemic. And I think this is one of the things that the pandemic has done to churches throughout this country Perhaps even throughout the world, the pandemic has shaken the church up and those who weren't digging deep are no longer around. Those whose lives weren't being built up on the rock that is Christ crucified and risen. Those that weren't being built up on that foundation, they're no longer around. And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about... All the churches that I interact with on a regular basis and interacting with leaders and even people that I've talked to who've walked away from the faith, it was clear when you listen to their rationale and how the pandemic unsettled them and destabilized them, their life wasn't being built upon the right foundation. It was a superficial form of the faith that was easily blown away. But we're going to refuse to settle for that. We're going to dig deep as disciples in this church. We're going to build our lives upon the rock that is Jesus. Because life in the kingdom of God should look stable. It should be unshakable. Life in the kingdom of God should be able to withstand all the chaos of the fallenness of the world around us. This is one of the things that was different between T.S. Eliot and Virginia Woolf. They both experienced World War II breaking out. They both experienced World War I, World War II. They both experienced those, but they responded to those calamities differently. Elliot responded with faith. He eventually trusted in Jesus and found stability there. Virginia Woolf never did. And she experienced a lot of tragedy in her life. She had friends die. She saw the bombings happening, and she was anticipating this new, world, this new war breaking out. She could see it coming, and so what she decided to do one day was to take some rocks, put them in her pocket, and walk out into the water, and she took her own life. She was unstable, and she was destabilized by the events of this tough world, and it rocked her, and I don't mean that as a joke. That's probably a poor choice of words. It ended tragically. It ended woefully for her. She took her life in the very place that God would like to have taken her sin. Take it, throw it into the bottom of the water so they can never surface again. It's a tragic ending to a wonderful, gifted, talented woman who didn't find stability in the kingdom of God. But this kingdom is available to those who are within earshot of Jesus' words today. Those who are within earshot to hear his words and to believe his words and to align their lives up with his words. The beautiful thing about what Jesus is laying down in the sermon is that the kingdom of God is what life looks like when Jesus gets his way. and, And this is what Jesus wants for you. He wants this for every person in this city and every person on this planet. He wants stability. He wants beauty. He wants to be a help to them. He wants mercy and grace and joy to be realized by every sinner and sufferer in this room, in this city, and around this world. This is what Jesus wants for us. Because the kingdom of God is what life looks like when Jesus gets his way. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is Jesus getting his way in your life? Are you listening to him? Are you following him? Are you trusting him? Are you digging deep so that your life may be built upon a firm, stabilizing foundation? Now, Jesus would speak these words from a plane one day to all of these disciples, setting the culture for what his kingdom is like. And then one day he's going to go to the cross, he's going to speak another word, and then he's going to rise from the dead and he's going to take his seat at the throne of his heavenly father. He's going to speak some more words. And we get this picture of Jesus securing and establishing his kingdom, not just through the words he speak, but through the work he did on the cross. And he now reigns and rules over all that is from his throne. As the victorious king in the kingdom of God, wanting this kind of life for everyone. And so when we think about Jesus' kingdom, we think about the kingdom of God. We're thinking about what life looks like when Jesus gets his way. So let's defer to that. Let's surrender to that. Let's submit to that all by the grace of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you help us to think well about your word Give us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive and respond with faith in what you say and faith in what you have done for us and faith in what you will do for us one day when you return to settle your kingdom once and for all. God, would you help us to build our lives upon you right now so that we're ready for when that day comes. God, we love you and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.